Hello, welcome to We Don't Talk About the Weather, political discussion that from the outside may look like screaming and crying. I'm Adam, this is Hugh. Hello. And we're here to talk news and politics. We are. I, I, I did a bad thing today. What did you do? Um, I didn't sleep much last night. Right. So normally I record, and normally whenever anyone sees me, I'm usually running on about four to five hours of LBC. You've, yeah. But right now... You've been running on that for years as well. Yeah, yeah. it's... It, it's amazing that my heart rate is actually like my blood pressure is pretty good. <laughs> Surprise, surprising, <laughs> but like today, I was up at about half three. So see, I only ever see it, half three from the other end because I'm very a very late, and it's ten to eight now. Late, late guy. I stopped listening to LBC an hour ago. You just you need to find a new station. Maybe talk radio, <laughs> Times Radio. What? Well, uh, if any of our listeners know of a talk radio station, because I like talk it radio. It won't be the need... station either, it'll be the show, yeah, of course, as well. Yeah, I, like, I need like just general nattering in the background hmm. to soothe me. Because I need <laughs> sounds. I can't deal with being alone. I need the constant noise. Yeah, but yeah. music is too much. And it's like, I can't listen to pod. I try to listen to podcasts, but like especially at night, I feel rude. Critiquing their sound quality. Well, no, I feel rude falling asleep. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. That feels mean. People shouldn't feel rude if they fall asleep listening to us. Are the podcast but... hosts in the room with you right now? <laughs> Do you see them around you? Are they judging you? you? <laughs> well, the thing is, like, the people I know who run podcasts, they wouldn't be upset with me for falling asleep at night. They should be. <laughs> but I How worry. How dare you? But I worry. So I need something that I can just generally ignore. But yeah, so that's oh, just, my my go to for that is NHK, which is the Japanese state yeah, but uh, I can't have broadcaster. That. I can't. That's not a. That's a. It, but that that has a, a nice a, a nice on. I don't burble, have a TV in the bedroom. A nice burble in the background, you know, some Studio Ghibli music. But I can't have that in the bedroom as I fall asleep, can I? I've got the iPad. Yeah, but then the light. Uh, I sleep in the dark room because I'm a grown up. <laughs> put it under the bed. <laughs> Hide it under the bed. Hide from the internet. <laughs> like you should. <laughs> But yeah, so that's that's just been just melting my brain. So I listened to PMQs. <laughs> okay. So you decided to remedy all of this horror by listening to PMQs. So it's bad. It is bad. Like parliamentary democracy as a concept, it's terrible. As it exists. Yeah. I would say actually existing. Yeah, it's terrible. If you add like you know, like Mystery Science Theatre takes a shit film and then adds funny commentary to it to yeah. make it entertaining. Imagine that, but it's PMQs and it's James O'Brien and Theo Rushwood. Because <laughs> that's what happens. That's what you get. <laughs> but so they're not, so funny. Not in a good way. <laughs> not in a good way. I'm surprised I don't date. Does it, do they do they do it like football commentary? Like, oh, that's a bad. Um, at the end, they go, at the end they go over the highlights, but sometimes during it. Um, O'Brien will sneak in with like a, a little comment. Like, That's Ooh. a lie. Oh, he won't get away with that. Um, as he gets away with it for the 15,000th time. Pretty much. Like, oof. <laughs> Wallop. Just awful, awful things. But yeah, that's what, I've, that's what I've been doing and it hurts the brain. <laughs> and it damages the soul. I think it, I think it lessens, lessens me. <laughs> I'm quite pleased. Like, okay, so I like, I, for a while... <clears throat> I had a good idea for what to stream on Twitch. Right. Because like Ah oh, yes, your Twitch our friend, our friend Bobby has he has a good like core idea. 
Twitch.tv at Nervous. Yeah. Dot slash Nervous. He has a good idea, which is like, he just play, he plays Kusage. He plays shitty games, shit, normally shitty horror games. Hmm. And they're fun because yeah. they're terrible. Um, and so he's got his like core remit. So like originally what I was going to do was when the re-release of Diablo 2 came out, hmm. I was going to do a thing that I'd never been able to do as a kid, which was beat Diablo 2 on hardcore on like the highest difficulty, get to the right yeah. to the end. yeah. But then, obviously, Blizzard have the mega cancellation, so I can't really do that. And so I was like, oh, "Do I do? Do I? Do, what do I do? Do I stream fighting games? Do I do that?" Um, but no, I have cottoned onto a good idea now. So I've like got my thing of I'm going to play through all the games that haunt me, haunt haunted right. me as a child, and haunt me still now, and beat them so they can exercise those ghosts. Yeah, that's what I'm going to do. So I've been thinking about that a lot. So basically, what I did was I watched a load of videos of old Spectrum games and gave myself a migraine because of the sound quality and the video quality. <laughs> so that's what I've been doing as well. We're calling this section Hugh's Hoontology. <laughs> yeah, but it's like that's, that's what I've been doing. I've been listening to LBC and watching like video of Black Lamp on Spectrum. <laughs> Don't. Don't do it. Don't do it. Better than politics, though. Fucking politics. Fucking awful. Awful thing. Oh, God. Yeah, okay. Right. <laughs> I did start playing Skyrim again. Yeah, yeah, you did. Look, if I can't... If you can go back and exercise your demons, I can go back and rattle in mine. <laughs> okay? Please go. How many copies of Skyrim have you bought? Actually, do you know what? I've only bought two copies ever in the last ten years. Ooh. That was the original one and the... Um, the like PS4 version. And then the anniversary edition, which was like an add-on. So I've only actually... I I went for about, like, I think maybe six or seven copies of the PC edition of Diablo 2 because that was when I was smoking smoking weed all the time. So I'd just lose them. (laughs) And you'd lose the the code. Yeah, yeah. I I got a bootleg copy of Diablo 2 and uh, I think it didn't have the code in. In the end, (laughs) after a while, I worked out the secret and that was behind my computer I wrote in permanent marker on the wall of my bedroom. (laughs) Oh, to B20 again. <laughs> That's the real hauntology. Someone's going to come across that and go, what, what manner of creature lived here? <laughs> My mum all of the frustrated, as soon as I left. All of the frustrated futures, all of, all of the disappeared pasts, <laughs> just forgotten. So yeah, you, you're doing a Skyrim thing like an idiot. Oh, I'm doing a Skyrim run. I don't know, it's quite, it's quite chill. I mean, like, I, I, I only really play games for chill at the moment, mm. um, just because I'm waiting for Destiny to come back and... That will that will come back in beginning of December and then again in February. So I'm a very creature of routine, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. So politics wise, there's been like they've still been doing the sleeves, playing the sleeves, the sleeves, pressing the sleeves button. Um, I mean, how many work. Tory MPs are there, and how many days are there until the next election? Because um, that's basically what you could do here. Yeah, you could just like slowly drip feed. It's... And there's Labour MPs. <laughs> yeah, but um, it doesn't matter. All because Boris did not today in... was do Michigan Deroya, Michigan Deroya. Yeah, the, the, the because that's the problem. You can't, you can't, and it's why like the the Labour Party had their their idea for banning certain kinds of second jobs, not all second jobs, certain kinds. And it's like, why? Because you know it all negatively if you ban all of them. It is, it is interesting because like we've talked about it before but that, that balancing act between working out whether Boris's government was an exception to every single government hmm. since Thatcher? Maybe before, hmm. probably before Thatcher, I don't know, mm-hmm. I wasn't alive then. Um, 
and whether it could go on forever activating these new circuits that it seemed to have found, this mm. like red wall bullshit, or if it was actually like every other government and the sleaze would eventually... There would eventually come a time when the press had decided that was enough and decided to reassert themselves. Because yeah. they're asserting themselves in a positive sense for Boris because they have power by mm. praising him all the time in the most ludicrous pattern possible. In the most ludicrous we saw, manner um, possible. Do you see um, Isabella Hookshop yeah, yeah. <laughs> defending Stanley Johnson was like, yeah, he could be a bit handsy, but he's so charming, would it? <laughs> oh. Don't ask his wife. Oh. Yeah, exactly. It's it's yeah. that it's that kind of thing, and and like you could see, I keep seeing like the little mechanisms working behind mm. all these tweets of like, there was a Rachel Johnson article in like the Spectator or the Critic or somewhere. It was in Spectator, was in Spectator where she uh, talks about. Oh, it's hard to feel. It's hard not to feel sorry for uh, Jelaine Maxwell. And it's like, okay, right, whatever. It's controversialist. She knew her for a bit, apparently. But she inserts this line about, there I was, walking into Balliol Hall in Oxford, and I see... Uh, called her a, she called her a glamazon. I saw this glamazon with her um, leg up on my brother Boris's thigh. And it's like, oh, right, uh, doing Kremlin- Kremlinology for this, <laughs> have you fallen out with your brother? <laughs> Immediately trying to tie him to... Gillet Maxwell. He um, had a meeting with the 1922 committee tonight and apparently no one who was in that room is allowed to talk to the press. Really? Yeah. He did seem... He doesn't seem well, but none of them... That's the thing. It's really hard to tell if a politician is well, seeming... how do you mean? Like, sick? Well, he seemed like... Like, he just... He seems tired. tired. He, to be fair, he had, like, a day of being told off. <laughs> which is, you know, that's hard for a young boy. He, um, went, he maybe probably doesn't it's have hard the to tell if they, It's hard... Yeah, probably not. But, but also, he doesn't have the like. He doesn't have the crazy willpower because there's nothing really he wants to achieve. He's achieved no. what he wants to exactly. achieve. He was prime minister. Yeah, but it's um, it's always hard to tell if they're looking well or unwell, if they're looking worn or unworn, because you only ever see them with other fucking politicians who all look like pieces of shit. Mm. It's like, oh look, he's not looking well, or is he? Because they all look like they're slightly falling apart. Well, sometimes. that was that was always the case of like. Every prime minister looks worse when they leave because of the yeah. like stress and the aging and, and whatever. Yeah. But with him, it's like, well, what is his actual desire at this point? Like, I know that somewhere deep underneath, he thinks leveling up is actually a thing. Hmm. But at the same time, I don't think he has anywhere near. He doesn't know what it means. No. He doesn't know what that would mean and what that would. The amount of things you'd have to overturn to actually mm-hmm. do that. And I saw there was a scattering of. Um, like headlines in maybe some of the bigger northern papers, like yeah. the Manchester Evening News, saying Boris, fulfil your promise to the north, and it's like you know that's not you know that that's not what's no. what's going to happen. No. But again, it's like it's it's this constant battle with this government in particular of trying to work out whether whether they're serious, whether they're actually going to ful- try and fulfil a promise they've made, mm. or whether they really don't mm. care and they really are just like playing at it, you know. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a difficult thing, and I think like yeah, the sleaze thing has come along just at the time where you would expect a kind of sleaze thing to come along. Maybe accelerated because they're not a new government; it's the mm. same people has been in charge for the last ten years. Mm-hmm. And despite the fact that changing the leader seemed like a very unique trick that had worked, mm-hmm. maybe it doesn't. Maybe it hasn't. I don't know. It, it it's it feels like all those mechanisms aren't working because of any kind of popular will but because of like the little flashes of like elite 
squabbling that you mm. see in things like Isabel Oakeshott getting involved in something that she really didn't. Who cares about you defending Stanley Johnson? No. Man is, what, 70, 80? It's a million. He, he, like, he's not a politician. I do think it's, it's, he's quite, not like it's a, quite offensive that people are going after the child of an immigrant like him. <laughs> But yeah, it's it's that kind of thing of like oh, I'm just I just want a little bit more of movement just to see how this plays out because it's still it's buckling and there's so many things that you're hearing but it's not it's not that good stuff like that popular pressure it's mm. not that Corbyn era stuff where you feel like hey mm. you could get a better thing because it's like what you what have you got mm. instead you've got <laughs> Keir Starmer becoming Prime Minister and immediately announcing he's like severing the link with the trade unions or some <laughs> insane thing that the Labour right is obsessed with. Um, well, you know, they're, sev- they're not supporting BDS anymore. Oh, God. I don't care. I don't. I, no, I just think it's the thing is with Starmer, it's like it's. I, I think it says an awful lot about a man who will share a platform and be really nice to a woman who thinks that his marriage shouldn't be allowed. Yeah. It's like, what kind of weak-willed, pathetic piece of shit are you? So this week, we're going to be talking about September the 11th. Now, I know what you're thinking. We're recording this in mid-November. Yep. But I got married on September the 13th. I tried to make it September the 11th. It, oh, it, just, it just didn't pan out. Yeah. Um, I feel like that would be a suitable capstone to the last 20 years of my life. <laughs> um, and then we thought, oh, we're going to be really clever and do it on uh, the 9th of November. Mm-hmm. Um, that also fell through because we were sick and then had to get the schedule get pushed back and all of that kind of stuff. Dude, so it's more important than 9-11. Yeah. And so it's now been 20 years plus two months. Um, and we're going to talk about... Our memories mm-hmm. of September the 11th. Um, what do you remember of, like, 9-11, September the, actual, the 11th, the 2000, 2001? Yeah. So, as a nerd who has always paid attention to the news and TV, mm. I was glued to the set now. I, was, um, I had ditched physics to smoke weed, and I went back to a friend's house to play Dead or Alive 2, I thought it was Capcom versus SNK2, but I was checking because I was going to rip some music to use in this episode. <laughs> and that came out a couple of months later, so I couldn't have played that. So my memory of 9-11 has always been wrong. You Much altered like it. society. You, oh, shit. Oh. You retroactively remembered 9-11 wrong, but yeah. you didn't remember anything about 9-11. It was just the, the fighting game you were playing. Yeah, so I, like we got into the house and his mum was like, oh my God, look what's happened on the news. Look at this, look at this. And... We literally said, I couldn't give less of a shit. I just went upstairs to play computer games. That was my memory of 9-11. Yeah. It's, you, you know, you, we're tr- trying to... Actually, I think, you know, we're trying to create a, a sense of the time, a structure of feeling around... Oh, I was wearing Jinkos as well. I was wearing oh, big old Jinkos. God. I was wearing big old Jinkos, and I was probably wearing a Slipknot hoodie or a tall shirt. Hugh, if... It was a tall shirt and Jinkos, probably. Oh, God. Hugh, And a wallet if, chain. If 9 And a wallet chain. A big old wallet chain. And, ah, uh, because my trainers... Because I used to wear those fucking grinders, didn't I? For grinding on curbs that would break my fucking ankles. So, Because you know those grinder things for jumping on curbs and sliding along? Like a cool guy in escape video. Imagine them, but you live in Medway and you spend a lot of time in Rochester with its cobblestone fucking streets. You fall over a lot when you're high. <laughs> Hugh, all I'm saying is if 9-11 marked the end of the long 90s or whatever you want to call it, I'm surprised the terrorists didn't smash a plane into you. <laughs> oh, it was beautiful. 
It was, it was like we're trying to remember because for like you youngins out there, if, and shoulder length dyed black hair. Imagine me, <laughs> gorgeous figure I was. It, it would have been, it would have been one of the three. It would Still have been a virgin. The, it would have been the two. <laughs> you shock me. <laughs> it was one. It, I was going to say of the t-shirts, it's either the tall t-shirt, the Slipknot t-shirt, or the Wolverine t-shirt, or the Silver Surfer one. It wasn't. I never had a Wolverine shirt. I had a Silver Surfer. You I had, had a Wolverine shirt. No, I had a huh? massive, incredibly baggy tie-dye Silver Surfer shirt that was. <laughs> Glorious. <laughs> I think it's important, kind of, we, we are old enough now to have to play a role in preserving specific memories that are outside of the public realm. And I think it's important people know what shirt you were wearing on 9-11. <laughs> because it is one of those events that, like, yeah, you track. I'm not going to say, oh, it was like when Kennedy was shot, you remember where you were, or anything like that. But you do remember where you were. Mm. It is one of those events. Um, for me, I was, so I was at school. Yep. Obviously. We were we we had just turned seventeen. Yeah. We had just turned seventeen uh the previous week or yeah. within a fortnight of that. Yeah. Um I was at school and it was it was that kind of time when in schooling where teachers just didn't turn up to lessons. So naturally I was on the internet all day. Yeah. This is amazing. I didn't actually know, despite being on the internet all day, I didn't know nine eleven had happened until five PM that afternoon. Um, that is a proper fucking time warp as well. It's like you were on the internet all day and you didn't immediately know everything that was happening. Yeah. Yes, that's how it could happen. It yeah. could, depending on where you were, a limited amount of sites. What were you looking at on the internet? I was probably browsing something awful. Yeah. At, at, at some point, I was probably doing that. Yeah. Oh, well, that's the thing as well that's happened. Like, um, yeah. um, that happened on um, 11th of the 11th, didn't it? Um, Richard Kianka. Oh, God, yeah, low tags. Low tags died. Uh, yeah. Whatever you can say about what impact that man had on the world, he was a piece of shit. <laughs> and it's him and Glinner, the two people most ruined by the internet. Hmm. Questions? <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> but um, so I got home and I heard. I heard again. I will tell this through video game history. Mm-hmm. I had borrowed a copy of Red Alert Two mm-hmm. um, from someone, and one of the first images in the kind of FMV of that. Is uh, like Soviet zeppelins invading New York. Nice. And going, I think the Twin Towers are in the thing. I need to check that actually, but they're certainly the, over New York. So it's like that recognizable destruction of a major city thing. Hmm. And, um, and I got home uh, with it in my hand and had like saw the news and it was like America under attack. Hmm. It was like looking at my hand, looking at the TV, <laughs> looking at my hand. Um, and it was weird because it was like, you know, the, the very de realizing and the World Trade Center had only ever been kind of part of a, a montage, mm-hmm. really. It's not what you thought of when you thought of New York. Not, not for me, anyway. Apart from that Simpsons episode. Um, yeah, it, it doesn't feature... I don't, can't think of any media yet it features in other than Homer goes to, to New York. And yet when the towers came down, there was all this kind of like... Uh, there was this rush to like edit the Twin Towers out. Like it had been mm. in every film. And it was... You know, people were searching for like um, clues to whether the... the it was a predicted that the towers mm. had gone down or whatever. The only one I could think of, like, film that was, like, I remember them um, changing the Spider-Man thing. Because mm. remember, there was an advert with Spider-Man that was the most. The that was the most famous one. It was that first Spider-Man film and it had him put in a web that caught a helicopter that was yeah. going in between the two, it was crashing in between the two towers and that was edited out of the, the trailer. And, Spider-Man had been in the call earlier that morning so he didn't turn up to work that day. <laughs> <laughs> but it was like, 
Suddenly, this was, sorry, I'm, this was meant to be featured in every piece of media. Mm. Every song that was going to come out was suddenly about 9-11. And like, it, like, Limp Biscuits Rolling was very popular at that time. That fucking vi music video was filmed on top of the Twin Towers. And they won Best Rock Video the day before for that video. It's so weird. Suddenly it was like the centerpiece of, the Twin Towers were like the centerpiece of New York and by proxy, World, the world, or at mm. least the world of kind of capitalism, the, mm. the West. Um, and it, it did feel at the time it was like, I don't know, I wasn't, I was surprised. It was an incredibly spectacular thing to watch. I've never, you have never watched anything like that in no. real time if you haven't seen it. Like, it, it's, it's like nothing else. And it's brutal and horrible to kind of compare things like that. Mm. But man, that was incredible to watch hmm. like live holy shit I mean obviously I wasn't watching it live I was watching hmm. it at 5pm but but it was interesting because like you track back and it did feel like the conclusion of something in a very like vague sense because hmm. like it did feel like we were waiting for something to be destroyed when you you look back and you consider the kind of media that was around then you know that they they waited for something to be destroyed and then installed its in, its importance afterwards yeah. you know um in addition to actually borrowing red alert 2 i had actually pr recently within like a few weeks watched uh, the denzel washington film the siege hmm. right that's Denzel Washington, Bruce Willis, and it has New York completely shut down over like a series of bombs exploding over the period of like a week or a fortnight or something. President declares martial law, puts in a general played by Bruce Willis, he puts him in charge of finding the terrorist cells, and they intern all the Arab men in the city, all the Arab American men. Um, Denzel Washington's like an FBI agent, and Annette Benning plays a CIA agent, who it turns out has, after organising anti-Saddam militants, and then cutting their funding, have turned their attention to the US. Bruce Willis has an Arab man tortured to death, and the final like terrorist cell after this of this series of, of bombs that have gone off, um, a man who Denzel Washington had like arrested earlier in the film, but had then kind of been vouched for by the CIA woman, um, then plans to detonate a a bomb amongst the multi ethnic peace march against the martial law that New York has been put under. Um, and at the end, Denzel Washington arrests the general, Bruce Willis, for the torture and the murder of the Arab man while giving a speech about civil liberties. How do you not say that subconsciously this was being waited for? Mm -hmm. And like, that is constantly what I think about with 9-11. Was, mm. it, was it predictable? Was it like anticipated in some sense? You know? Because subconsciously, I feel like the US and the US sphere had been waiting for this for, for years. Because, mm. you know, afterwards as well, all those lines that came out right after the attacks, all the stuff about the balance between security and liberty mm. and the uh, like surveillance of people's emails, Patriot Act, mm. um, blowback from US foreign policy. It felt like an argument that was like years in the making. I yeah. felt like... This had been prepared mm. in popular culture for a long time. And, you know, on the nascent internet as well. Um, everyone knew the lines. You know, this was going to make us talk about these things in... You know, it was going to force us to talk about these things and th for them to have concrete effects. And remember, this wasn't like the age of internet discourse either. Mm. You know, this wasn't where everybody is kind of steeped in discourse, you know, no matter 
how on the internet they are because it filters through back into news media and basically anything you kind of consume mm. on the internet or otherwise. Underneath it all, we already had like a language and a, like a cushioning for what the post 9-11 period would be about. That was very weird to me. Mm. Yeah, it's... Um, it's think about like with the preparing for something. It's like, as we were talking today, it's funny with... Shows, like, in this country, Thingy got made straight afterwards. Um, spooks. That yes. got made after 9-11. Yeah. It literally so that's was, a definite reaction yeah, like, um, to 9-11. Kudos were like, I think they, they were almost bust. Um, and it literally saved them. Like, uh, it got rushed through. Um, but it feels like, 24 feels like a show that was made because of 9-11. Yeah, but, but it wasn't. Yet it wasn't, yeah. Because it was made, like, because... And then they were afraid of... Um, I think it was due to um, premiere like a month after. Yeah. It started filming in like July of that year. Yeah. It was, um, so it's, it's... Yeah, it's obvious that the, the fear was there. Yeah. And like, and like make that fear mixed up with... Yeah. Because America needs a bad guy to, pen, to you know, to... Since, yeah, so the that's end why of the they Cold had... War had left them without a kind of world historical purpose. I mean, they were... They were spreading kind of like these... Attempted feel-good globalization mm. vibes, like eventually everyone would be like them, mm-hmm. and the hegemony was real, and the hegemony was strong. And you have nine eleven, and there's this sudden real vulnerability mm. to like the American response. Like you don't, you don't come out of that and look at the way people were acting and say, "Ah, yes, this is an empire at ease with itself." Yeah. Th- th- this and um, bear in mind these attacks. Uh, you know, within the day, probably people were really panicking. But mm. even the day after, there was no sense that there was anything more to this yeah. than was presented. It was Osama bin Laden striking at the great Satan mm. for his support of Israel and of the Saudi regime in a pretty obvious political event that also had kind of cultural and uh, spectacular undertones, like the mm. spectacle. Mm-hmm. He wanted to strike an image of America as much as anything particularly useful to yeah. the American war effort. But this wasn't going to, like, destroy America. No. But the way they went about it was like, yeah, no, we are dead because of this. Yeah. We have died. Yeah, it's, yeah. You know, this is mortal. Like, I look back and I think of, kind of, the things I was... Co- <laughs> You're just giving you a little kiss. I look back and, like, consider things of significance, but I always try and, like, make sure I'm not putting undue significance because you have your own, like, filter when you're hmm. thinking of... When you're thinking back on, like, public memory and applying your own, like, experiences to it, I think you have to be careful not to apply, like, undue significance to things that might just be significant to you. Mm-hmm. You know, every generation believes they're the most special generation. They're the generation that are finally going to do it, whatever mm-hmm. it is, I guess. But... There was a sense in the things that I was consuming at that time, the media I was consuming, of they were waiting for this and there is something wrong. Perhaps only 9-11 gives it that significance. But mm. like I was listening to like uh, my two favourite albums of, that were released that year was like Lateralis by Tool mm-hmm. and Toxicity by System of a Down. Two things, like don't run, let me explain. <laughs> All of you, I'm not going to talk about new metal. I am going to talk about new metal. Um... Like, both albums based on kind of notions of a, a decline in yeah. power, a kind of splintering of collectivity and trust in, and trust in other people and 
especially with System of Down, obviously more um, politically, uh, like put in political language. But there's this definite feeling of like, yeah, the 90s are coming to an end. Hmm. You know that, that, that the centre can't hold. There's something in US culture that people are realising is reaching a level of saturation that, that, that cannot go on. This, this, this particular relation of people to governments and people mm. to their own culture is, is not going to continue. And like, maybe it was the detonating internet that mm. was kind of causing that. I, I, but I think, yeah, it was, there was something else, you know, happening there as well. I mean, like, you've got a bunch of bands like Godspeed You Black Emperor, um, Explosions in the Sky, mm. Silver Mount Zion, which is, the, you know, the same roughly the same people as Godspeed You Black Emperor, some of the same people, of this kind of, at the moment of the greatest triumph, they've got this mourning tone, they've got this, mm. like there's this sadness, all running through all of it like something has been lost. Yeah. And again, Godspeed, slightly more politically mm. charged language, politically oriented language, but um, on the other hand, you also had like fucking didn't realise until I looked it up for this episode, um, Silver Side Up by Nickelback, Released on September the 11th. This is how you remind me of who I really am. <laughs> if history has an architecture, my friend, that's part of it. What Nickelback's real villains of 9-11? And I'm saying Nickelback did 9-11. Yeah, the guy who gets to wear the cowboy hat, he's... <laughs> and the cowboy boots. There's only one at any one time. They're Canadian, aren't they? Um, I don't know. There's like there's such an Americanness to them that it feels like they're probably Canadian. <laughs> but you look at the like films of that year, and it was like things like um, I mean, The Beach was technically two thousand, but like Donnie Darko, Memento, Castaway, Training mm. Day, Vanilla Sky, all films about missing a piece, mm. forgetting, wanting to be somewhere else, mm. trying to find an alternate mode of living, and probably failing. Mm. Like there's. All of this kind of ennui and discontent is 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 kind of spreading and balled up, and then like eleven happens, it cuts it all off. There yeah. is no, you know, it, it suddenly, you know, you get past that, and everything matters. Everything there's like a a fake effective flow that has to come from nine eleven that mm. means that everything you do has to matter because everything is throwing itself in the face of an unknown outside context enemy. Yeah. An enemy that can't really be defeated except by living well. Mm-hmm. The greatest revenge is living well. And that was like the great appeal of like the war on terror. It's like a war you can fight that you didn't have to do anything about. Yeah. You know? Did you is there anything you noticed about like culture and politics like changing in those like months after 9-11? Because like it felt different. And again, we had to I slash we had turned 17. Everything is changing for yeah. us. But there is something that you're leaving behind in the nineties, I think that is separated by 9-11? Before 9-11, I distinctly remember things not feeling like it mattered. Like, there's a reason why, like, everyone was still wearing um, grunge shirts. Because everyone was still kind of Gen X-y. Yes. Even New Metal was kind of grungy still. Yeah. Um, but I do remember the sudden shift to pre-war. That it felt like that. It felt way more violent everything got tighter yeah everything but not was, like, there like was, there was things it, you were supposed to do weird, like, I, like early memories of, of me, like because traveling back and forth between my parents always having to go through central london and like always very aware of um of 
the IRA and why there are yeah. no bins in train yeah. stations, that kind of thing. So that kind of thing was always in my head. But it was, and then like never felt at risk mm. and didn't feel at risk after 9-11 or after 7-7. Like I was living yeah. in London then. Like, um, um, So like I never felt nervous about that stuff, but did feel nervous about what we were going to do. Like yeah. there was always, that, that was the main shift I remember. That being said, I wasn't, like that's me coming into like be, first being aware of politics was being like everything feels like it's pre-war. I don't like this because mainly I was made, I was seventeen. Yeah, I've just started talking to a girl who wore an Iron Maiden patch on a leather, on a denim jacket. <laughs> I was you know distracted. <laughs> there is a weird actually. There's a weird rejoinder to that uh, like system of down thing, and that I really liked that album, but mm-hmm. then I eventually went to see System of a Down live. Uh, like Reading or Download mm. or somewhere. And it was like 2004, 2005 maybe. Mm. And uh, that was the most violent crowd I've ever been in. That's where I got my nose broken. <laughs> um, and it was funny how something that felt very profound and about decline mm. by 2004 and five had turned into an excuse for violence. Mm. And it mirrors that turning yes new metal probably mm. I'd, I'd say if we're focusing on things that we remember and that that new metal became mopier but it also became like more of an excuse for mm. for like really like getting your aggro out except yeah. now you had a target for your aggro and yeah. it was osama bin laden yeah well you remember that um the papa roach gig where they stopped and, uh, and asked us to stop can you stop with the circle bits please <laughs> it's like one of my abiding memories of a reading festival dude. can you please stop <laughs> that's when new metal died for me <laughs> the day you were there the day the music died it was <laughs> moving like specifically because we're a UK mm. podcast mm. lots of people have done the US reaction I think that's a US reaction do you think there's a specific US context uh, do you think there's a specific UK context to 9-11 because like we it's, it's very strange because like I kind of see it as like the final stage of the blending of American and British culture. Mm. And I think like one of the reasons like the major era, the era before this Mm. fascinates me so much is that I think it's actually probably like the last holdout of a feeling that there was a, such a thing as a separate UK and American culture, Mm. there's separate national interests. There aren't actual separate national interests, but there was held out the possibility of there being, you know, like the, there was still kind of that sense of the the culture war was between the old kind of class bound bourgeois and the new up and coming working class boys done good. Mm. Even in like um, like comedy, like the two major years standouts, Hyacinth Bouquet and mm. Gordon Brittis, are both irritating class bound, specifically British things. Yeah. But then there was this new labour class that came in, that the new labour culture came in, mm. that was like, yeah, American culture is everything good, mm. and. I feel like, yeah, 9-11, there was no distinct response to it. It was like we were kind of an, a 51st state. Yeah, that we weren't any different to America. Perhaps. Like, it, like, re, like I feel, I've, very quickly it was a wound on one is a wound on all of us. Yeah. We definitely got, we felt this as well. And you can tell that they, they were happier when we got attacked as well. Because yeah. then it's like, oh look, it is definitely. Oh, oh us. it is. It is definitely us. Yeah, we are. We are one of them. Mm. That yeah. is the big thing as well. It allows the UK to rejoin. Yeah. Even though it was slipping out. Yeah. 
but it allows them to firmly cement their place and New Labour to cement, to be the ones to cement the UK's yeah. place as one of those countries. We yeah. are one of those countries that is deemed to be attackable. It's in the aftermath of 9-11 here that I first become aware of what the job of Home Secretary is. <laughs> and that is to harsh buzz, to just ruin things, make things worse for everybody. <laughs> Yeah, it did feel like at first, I think there was a kind of re-rehearsal of the kind of a little reactivation of the old Diana circuits mm. as well, because like supposedly Diana taught the nation how to mourn and how to have those grief spectacles that was in public, even though that's fucking bullshit. Have you ever been to a fucking funeral in your life? My God. <laughs> Talking out of your ass about Diana. But there's, the, yeah, the circuits of kind of images of grief and melodrama and mm. how it's portrayed and all that. And I also remember very early on, possibly the last gasp of the last gasp of separation, and maybe the first gasp of a, 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 a kind of distinction within an American orbit, mm. is that full sense of superiority that the British had very early on. Right? I might be misremembering it here, but there was definitely a whiff of saying to the U.S., "Oh, that's so embarrassing, mate." I'm so oh, that must be terrible. I'm sorry, you. your wife left you. My oh wife my would god, never leave I can't. Me. I mean, don't get me wrong, I've been through it with the IRA before. I, I know exactly what you're doing. I can't ever imagine being that embarrassed about it, though. <laughs> Your biggest building. I mean, we have Bishopsgate, but no one gives a shit about that. <laughs> oh, my God. You love that building. <laughs> and, it, yeah, perfect example. First days of the Afghanistan war, mm. right? Um, we were told, we were told, mm. and I, I have no idea how true this is, but the popular urban legend that everybody's dad told, your dad told it, my dad told it, everybody's dad told it, was that the SAS found Bin Laden in Tora Bora with their amazing tracking skills <laughs> and then had to let the Americans take him and then they blundered and he escaped. But yeah, this like sense of superiority that the British were like, oh, we've been doing this empire thing for so much long. We're doing this other countries thing for yeah. so long and we're so much more better at it yeah. and so much yeah. superior. And, like, it was kind of a safety valve that managed to separate the fact that, no, the Americans are fully calling the shots. Hmm. The British army is going anywhere the American army goes, mm -hmm. now until whenever it doesn't. Yeah. You know? And it also, it does, it also like, seems to skate over the fact that the British army got completely ruined in Helmand. Mm -hmm. I think they took over from, like, 2005 or something mm -hmm. and got completely ruined. Hmm. You know, they were completely beaten. You got this slow drip feed of news and it was like, oh, they're taking their helmets off and they're wearing berets because they want the local populace to trust them. Then it's like, oh, they're not in uh, tanks anymore because tanks are too slow and get blown up. They're in Humvees to make the people trust them. Then it's like, oh, they're confined to bases. Then they're confined to this one airstrip. <laughs> <laughs> we're getting shelled on this airstrip. It was amazing. And there was never any sense that like the UK was going to perform any kind of important role mm. in what was to come. Mm. And that's really kind of the like the sense that you got. No, the only the place UK for the for the British military to do anything impressive anymore is in the in Call of Duty games. Mm. Soap. Mm. <laughs> and yeah, new labour at, at war after nine mm. eleven. Mm-hmm. I don't... So, we framed it in exactly the same... We, in the generalist, most general sense, the public discourse in the UK framed it as... It largely the same way as a lot of uh, American co commentators 
it was a war of civilizations. It was a war of barbarism versus democracy. And that's why we are going to sell your hospitals and then let you rent them back. Because that's what a robust war economy looks like. You know, there was no, there, again, yeah. there was no sense that like you were actually at war. Mm. You didn't have to do anything. You just have to, had to keep shopping mm. and living your life. Mm. And that itself was a war against Islamism. Yeah. You know, that's just how... You see like a rerun of it now with, um, with, like, with the encouraging people to go shopping because, uh, with corona, because of coronavirus. Like, you know, we should all go out and shop now to solve yeah. the problem of coronavirus. And even saying, like, do you see that, um, that there's going to be armed police at sh- um, like, or shopping places to make us feel safe while we shop? I'm glad because if there's anything that could make Westfield and fucking Stratford more inviting... Is if there are men with guns ready to shoot germs, but yes, yeah, so, so you know we've got a shop. Yeah, and it it kind of another kind of important thing is that they they started changing what democracy meant, mm-hmm. right? The attacks were framed as an attack on democracy, mm-hmm. and from the Islamist side, this this was this was kind of an important like framing device for this whole thing because like from the Islamist side, the Middle East interventions were all done by democracies. Mm. Therefore, logically, it was the people who must have voted for a particular, for the, you know, British support for the Saudi regime or mm. for Israel or whatever. Otherwise, they would vote to stop it. So that made them guilty. So that made them targets, mm. right? This is bollocks because there's almost zero popular sovereignty control over mm. foreign policy. But this had an effect because you ended up, you weren't defending democracy as a principle. You weren't looking at what a democracy was good for or, or you know, it's it's... It's whether it was right or not. You're defending democracy in a snapshot in time exactly when those towers fell. Yeah. You know? If you changed it, logically, the chances were that you would change it into something that the terrorists mm. like didn't think was as bad. Yeah. So therefore, you could never, ever change it. Yeah. The goal, you know, it, it, it's... If the terrorists hated and attacked the symbol of democracy... Like they attacked the Twin Towers as a symbol. If they hated the symbols, it was the symbol that had to be propped up. It was the image, not the reality of it. Yeah. So the democratic system as it existed had to be preserved and defended. And it's something we're living with till today. You can't ever disrupt the workings of Westminster exactly as it mm. exists. Unless you know you're gerrymandering. <laughs> um, and, you know, all Western politicians suddenly turned into fucking heroes. Mm-hmm. You know, they were heroes of democracy. They were, even as they were working to exclude as many people from democracy as, and democratic decision-makings as possible. Yeah. And it worked, you know, it worked, the, the kind of symbolic conflict around this worked both ways because, like, what was the immediate response to uh, 9-11 in terms of, like, you know, the most extreme reaction you could think of? It was nuke Mecca. <laughs> something that absolutely would not have done one single thing to avenge or prevent 9-11. Yeah. But people were already ready to operate on that symbolic level and yeah. think in those terms. They weren't reacting to material conditions. They weren't reacting to real life. They were reacting to images they were seeing on the TV. Yeah. You know? Democracy and the exercise of politics became a symbol as a result of 9-11. It, was, it wasn't a function. It wasn't about the function of it, what it did for you. It was about the fact that it was there and it was ours. Mm. You know? You know, the return of this kind of imperial role that the UK had been allowed back into mm-hmm. necessitated, obviously, the one of the biggest effects of 9-11, which was the huge upsurge in Islamophobia. Yeah. Um, 
which is a very imperial kind of racism because it, it doesn't just affect you from abroad, it, affect, it has to affect you at the core as well, mm-hmm. has to affect you domestically. You know, falsely claiming that plots abroad were instrumental and they had like allies and mm-hmm. fellow travellers on the interior as well was super important. Um, and I think like in the way that Germany was portrayed before World War One a lot of the kind of racism was very much couched in terms of def- defining who the West was, in, let's say mm. the West in a large sense, rather than defining what Islamism was mm. and what Islam, like, look, what, you know, what the problem with Islam was or whatever. Yeah. It was about shoring up what the West was. Mm. You know, suddenly we were reasonable in that we had a rationality which allowed us to develop, like, I don't know, women's rights, gay rights, all those kind of things. And it started that wave of books being written about why the West won. Mm-hmm. The six apps of civilization. <laughs> you know, that, that kind of thing. About yeah. the kind of like unique nature and destiny of the West. All these closet fascists to come out and start publishing this, like, at best borderline. Mm. Like, <laughs> supremacism in a way. Like, they're generally... I, I, genuinely think when like kind of western hegemony fully ends yeah whatever form that takes we are going to look back at this and 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 like ask why were so many prominent public intellectuals publishing books about how the western mind is uniquely adapted to science which is in its best form a value neutral process yeah you know not fucking freedom mentats. We're not just like <laughs> drilled into it and we have the only brains capable of holding liberty in our brains. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, oh, God. I, it, oh, it reminds me. I remember a, a couple of years ago there was a, among, I had um, some Muslim friends in Birmingham and there, it was around the time when that conspiracy theory was going around about how Coke, like Coca-Cola, mm. had alcohol in the recipe. Yeah. Um, and you just remember thinking, like, it's at the same time, I thought it must have been 2008, mm-hmm. I'd say. And about the same time as you had the usual books of Neil Ferguson, Sam Harris, and whoever, publishing books about why the West was best. And it's like, yeah, I, I know you're wrong that alcohol is in Coke, but at the same time, like, if you're a Muslim in the UK and you're constantly presented with the, how the roots of science are all Western and how mm-hmm. your culture is, like, permanently incompatible with this completely neutral idea... yeah. Even if you were like were born here and are a scientist, yeah, it's no wonder you create your own sphere of alternative knowledge, isn't it? Yeah, it's you know, science and logic came from Greece and magically got it handed down to Rene Descartes or whoever. <laughs> it just drive you insane. Mm. But yeah, post nine eleven, you had a lot of public thinkers kind of taking up the the front line. There were a lot of people who used that moment to say actually i'm incredibly right wing and i'm a euro supremacist i mean obviously the ultimate one is christopher hitchens he's the ultimate example who said uh watching the towers fall um he said he felt an exhilaration here we are then i was thinking in a war to the finish between everything i love and everything i hate fine we will win and they will lose (laughs) and this was this was the birth of our moment right here of Mm. everybody being terrible yes having this public intellectual sphere completely dominated by the worst cunts imaginable. Well, we'd had the build-up of the 24-hour streaming news, and Mm. all they were waiting for is a subject that they could talk about forever. A sharp point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, this was kind of the... The West was, you know, had lost touch with its liberal roots, 
slash working class roots, slash national roots, slash racial roots. I don't mm. fucking know. Ed, pick one. It mm. was all of them. Um, but, you know, yeah, ultimately that the West had asked for 9-11 as a result of its own decadence. Yeah. I'm sorry, that's an incredibly fascist talking point. Mm-hmm. A million books of soul-searching for the spirit of what the West existed to defend. You know, Neil Ferguson's Empire. Guns, Germs and Steel. That's another one. So. That's like uh, the West won because we had wheat. I'm not joking. Because we had bread? We had, no, no. Because we had a specific kind of wheat that could be harvested a number of different times and other places didn't have that. Why the West did had wheat for thousands of years and didn't become a power <laughs> is I do not believe it's ever been answered. Just working out the recipes. It takes um, a while. Bread's hard. And, you know, the, the state was not exactly shy in kind of embracing this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. New Labour especially, because they're always very, they're very nervous about their place in regards to war and regards to authority. Mm-hmm. Because they're constantly worried of being called pussies. Yeah. They are, co- it's the great, I mean, it's the Democrats in the US as well, but yeah. New Labour especially, it's the worst possible thing mm. was for them to be called weak cowardly and so this is where the the kind of citizenship thing started up because you could combine all these ideas that came out after 9-11 into a kind of big stew that would help you kind of knit together a society that frankly had started coming apart at the seams anyway there was a lot of alienation there was no role for the working class class had largely been you know abolished as a as a talking point yeah. you weren't allowed to talk about class because new labor had come and freed you from that Thatcher had said she had come and freed you and then New Labour got elected and yeah, they had freed you from the bounds of class. You could be anything you wanted mm. to be. And I think it, that's the roots of the kind of anti-divisiveness mm. thing, I think, as well. Because when you're being divisive, when you talk about yeah. like class or, or racial issues or gender issues or anything like that, it's this idea that the citizenship that a kind of liberal democratic nationalism gives you is so weak that it needs these kind of extremities to shore it up. But of mm. course, those extremities take you away from the liberalness of it. It takes you into ultimately like nationalistic and like racial theory. Yeah. You know, and they, they were just desperate to use this kind of thing to, to knit everything together. And I mean, it, it was just this idea that Christopher Hitchens was going to be the one to fight this with his appearances on talk shows. That was the level of war and and conflict that this new era brought up Mm. it was going to be invasions very very far away that you're not allowed to know about Mm. you know not reporting the coffins coming back not reporting the images not really seeing anything from out i don't think i saw any like actual footage from afghanistan other than like tony blair going over there or something on those um the like that the the same footage they like to show that they like to show of iraq and afghanistan of um nighttime with the essentially fireworks destroying places yeah they like to show those ones yeah because they're like oddly sanitized it's there's no sense of like solidarity with them so you have to generate this kind of plastic solidarity Mm. it's this weird situation that you've always that you've had for years with the british people and the army in that no one wants to be fucking within a million meters of a soldier Mm. But also, they're the most important thing that must mm. always be protected. But they're also always being disrespected, mm. specifically by me in my attitudes. <laughs> you know, like it's yeah. it, it, you don't give a shit about the army, but they're the greatest, most important thing, and they can accomplish anything. Is the other thing as yes. well. That's every fucking old like old New Labour um, yeah. minister 
just constantly talks about how the army could do anything yeah. whenever they're deployed in floods or yeah. anything like that. And that was the thing with coronavirus as well. Mm. You know, like the army was always going to be called out, yeah. and they were just going to solve to coronavirus. shoot us in the back with vaccines. Yeah. Um, but either way, like the the intellectual combativeness of this period did absolutely fucking nothing to the Taliban because the Taliban were not the target. No, the Osama bin Laden was not the target. It was solely to discipline its society mm-hmm. and to punish minorities. Yeah, it, it really wasn't. It was it was a phony war. It was this. It was. It was the largest backdrop that an average citizen would be exposed to of the things that were going on as mm. a result of 9-11. Mm. You know? Um, because, yeah, it very quickly emerged that because the attack on the Twin Towers was a symbolic attack, that the response would also largely be symbolic. Yeah. You know, you, you, the Twin Towers, like any object of any thing ever has a load of different dimensions it's a new york icon it's an economic icon it's a globalization icon it's like the latter half of the 20th century it's an icon of that and taking it down didn't really affect the finance i mean it did affect the financial markets in a kind of very short-term way but it it was an absolute complete blow to the idea of western impenetrability Mm. that and it had to be healed on the image level yeah so it had to be healed by talking on things with on chat shows and talking about the West and talking about how great it was. Yeah. You know, it couldn't it couldn't and wasn't going to be healed by physical action, by yeah. reform. It was going to be simply we were going to redefine our citizens as worthy of being defended and some of our citizens as worthy of being punished and yeah. confined and monitored. And, you know, you can see it with some of the other things that come out of that kind of period. I mean, there's the focus on pictures of Muhammad, Mm. uh, Prophet Muhammad. Mm -hmm. Um, That was suitable revenge. Not, you know, the shooting of Osama bin Laden. It's like, no, it's necessary to burn these images. Yeah. In the same way as Nuke Mecca. You have to burn the images in order to achieve the same kind of symbolic victory over things that your enemies care about as Mm. opposed to things. This This was the birth of piss boiling. Mm. This was the beginning of piss boiling as a, the sole, like, political activity that you wanted to yeah. take part in, you know? After the fall of the kind of Berlin Wall, you suddenly also had an alternative society to hold up to people who, say, like, had lost out a great deal from the neoliberal turn mm. and say, you think that's bad? You should see what some Laden wants to store. You see what Sharia law is. Yeah. And it's like, it wasn't really until ISIS that you had like a kind of, and I'm pretty sure that's not it, that, you know, that's a society at war. It's not even an exact replica of what like somebody like Anna Osama bin Laden would have envisioned for a fully yeah. like Islamist society. But it was interesting that like everything was imaginary. Yeah. Everything you, 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 well, what would you do if the Taliban took over here? And it's like, I have no fucking idea because they don't want to take over here. Yeah. They don't want any of that. It's like... Yeah. The, imag- the imagined um, idea of what life would be like, it's like, it ties in with um, the underground bases, the underground base drawings mm. and things like that. It's entirely imaginary thing yes. that's brought up to shake at you yes. and frighten you. Yeah. To... Go to blue water because, like, you have to think that that's. They're not telling the army that. No, no. they're not well, telling. Hope they they're not telling the military that <laughs> yeah. because they're not preparing for that. I mean, yeah, 
well, maybe they were bombing, you know, they were bombing mountains, I guess. But mm. it, it, it doesn't doesn't help anyone. Everybody knew that that was fake. Yeah, that's the other thing. There's you're living with this dual this dual mindset of you know that everything or you know so much of what you are seeing is being manipulated, but you don't care or you don't have a handle about what you're supposed to do about it, mm. and that really did like shape a lot of like my political consciousness mm. of like when you know when they I was at uni by the time they kind of started to do, to do the build up to to war in Iraq mm. and from the beginning it's like yeah they're going to do this yeah they're 100% going to do this and there was all the dance mm. say about a year or so six months to a year and you're doing the little dance and it's, are they going to, oh, last minute negotiate? No, they're going to war. They're 100% going in. Yeah. They have decided. Why are you all pretending like mm. this is this is not happening? And yeah. that kind of dual consciousness is something I, I, I find it very difficult to live with. Yeah. You know, and you fucking better believe that we've lived with it for 20 years. Mm-hmm. You know, this idea that, and it's good liberals as well. Yeah. You know this is the case. You know this isn't true. But you're going to hedge your bets anyway. Mm. For some reason, you've started thinking like a fucking MP. Yeah. Like there's a political reality out mm. there that you have to adhere to for the for the frontage, for the look. Yeah. But you know it's not true. But then at the same time, you don't have any stake in it. You don't mm. have any stake in believing this thing. No. Who are you believing it for? Yeah. For probity, for 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 the image yeah. of it. Again, it's this this image. Everyone starts to develop these kind of this this image of the way that they want things to be while not being able to rely on the information that actually backs it. They're not mm. be able to rely on the material reality behind it. Mm. You know? Um What's well, like you, the the um like moving getting a bit away from um, 9-11, but it was because of the mood of it. Of it. Um, I don't remember, like, anyone I knew believing the stuff that was coming out about, like, why we had to go into Iraq. Yeah. But we had to act like it. Yeah. We had to act like there were a range of options on the table and politics was functioning as normal. I mean, this yeah. is true of Afghanistan as well. Yeah. Because there was an initial... There's Again, there's, like, a memory holding of of that kind of thing that, like... Yeah, the Taliban did offer to hand over Osama bin Laden, mm. but you can't have a literal physical victory against a wound that yeah. was an like an, an imagery wound. Yeah, your symbol was wounded. You had to wound their symbol, yeah. or at least demonstrate symbolically that your state was going to do everything it could to mm. look tough and yeah. look strong. And just arresting a guy wouldn't have done that. Yeah. And even when libs now kind of talk in in terms of military conflicts, mm-hmm. they like they've started to retroactively argue that like history was different and misremember history. Mm-hmm. You know, there's the the kind of remembering that the Taliban offered up Osama bin Laden, but at the same time, like Northern Ireland, mm-hmm. they go back and think that the British state defeated the IRA. Mm-hmm. You know, they they think that what won was superior force. Hmm. And that is another like big change that happens after that. And, it, and you see echoes of it throughout culture now. I would say before 9-11, there was at least a hint that the baddie in a film wouldn't necessarily die, but would be captured. There was more of a, 
Do you think that's the case or am I, am I projecting this? Because I look at like, I mean, we mentioned it last week in June. The one big thing that I can point to that changed between the book and the film of Dune is that Baron Harkonnen says um, in the book that they need to not eliminate the population because they need them to work. Yeah. In the film, it's eliminate them. Yeah. And I'm thinking of like the controversies around like I don't know Man of Steel or mm. the superhero films. Mm. Batman, uh, the Batman Begins. That's 2005, so yeah. a bit closer to the period. Um, Batman famously doesn't kill, mm. but lets Liam Neeson character die in the yeah. end by letting the tra- not rescuing him when the train crashes no. now that is killing hmm. and you see that reflected in a lot of things there's this like increasing casualness about why don't you just kill them why don't you just eliminate them hmm. it's post 9 pure post 9-11 logic is you've got to kill some people hmm. you can't not kill some well, we did like i'm um, back to 24 the difference between 24 season one and season two in hmm. season one he is um you know he's got his he is uh mean symbol of the American state <laughs> but um, it's at the start of, it's like right at the start of season 2 and he cuts off a guy's head with a hacksaw <laughs> because you know you've got to cut someone's head off with a hacksaw <laughs> but you know but, what I mean like they, but, yeah, there's, there's but that. it's also accompanied with the other fucking big big come out of 9-11 which is the trauma that goes along with cutting off that head Oh yeah, it's, um, Jack it's, Bauer is very traumatised by having to decapitate that man. Well, it's that thing that I've seen written a lot, the, um, that what America will do is bomb your country and then make films about how sad it made them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. America, small bean. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you've got like... I mean, later on there's like Homeland and stuff, which mm. is, well, I'm orchestrating coups, but I have mental health problems. <laughs> <laughs> but... Quite early on, there's kind of there's there is kind of a, a, a raw like trauma. Like you find a lot of like a lot of previous like rock bands start to do like um, like they've got one emotional number, they've got one slow number, and it's you know talking about how bad they feel. Yeah, that they had to do this thing. Yeah, but they had to do it. They had to do it, but they feel <laughs> bad about it, and you should feel bad for them. Are you bringing it back to new metal and how then if if it hadn't been for nine eleven, we never would have had stained. Are we hmm, stained? Were already around before nine eleven. It feels like they feel. But like I can't remember when that outside that outside song feels like it was pre nine eleven. Maybe I'm wrong. I'd have to look that up. Yeah, it was May two thousand one. Ah oh, shit! There's so many of those things of mm. those weird little synchronicities. Mm. Well, it's like I saw when I was looking up stuff. Um, the terrorism act in Britain was March of that year when huh. they made made it so you could prescribe. Um, groups they prescribe organisations yeah when they like start when they prescribe like when they started prescribing yeah mm. um, but I you know you so that's one of the things of, of waiting of knowing something is coming yeah and if it doesn't then we'll make it by fucking big pieces <laughs> of shit but yes it is interesting how like even down to like your emotional states your yeah. emotional states would be mobilised for the war Hmm. against this small group but actually it's a big civilization but actually it's mainly against the kind of invisible sense of futility you're mo- you're, you're not fighting al-qaeda you're fighting the 90s yeah you're fighting on we you're fighting the you're fighting post-capitalism you're fighting the end of history it, and it's not like these things were not mentioned before hmm. like neoconservatism is the basis of that that you had to have some kind of 
enemy. You had to be able to have a state that could tell lies to its citizens mm. in order to mobilize them for a more noble good. Mm. This was explicitly stated. Mm. And it's interesting how it was just so immediately utilized. Mm. Like people say Bush did 9-11 and it's like, I actually think it's because he was the fastest off the mark because mm. they already had all of that like ready. Like yeah. I think a really interesting question is, and I think you've raised this before, if 9-11 hadn't happened, mm. would things still have been the same? Yeah. You think so? I don't think so. I, don't th- I think it would have been very different. Um, I think, I think that... Well, the thing is, if 9-11 hadn't happened, something like it would have happened mm. um, and it would have been treated the same. I think it's still... Rec- I think 9-11... The specifics of 9-11 still require... Afghanistan would probably be better. <laughs> well, it would be a lot less dead people. Yeah. you know. But they would have found an excuse to go to Iraq. They would have found an excuse to attack someone. Yeah. I think it's like... It has this, it has this continuity, and mm. it's hard to separate it from the singular focus of the Bush presidency, because they, it really was for them. Remember, they were coming off less than a year, maybe a year and a half, from like an actual stolen election. Yeah. And... While they had probably managed to just about get away with that, it was still all lurking around in the background. Mm. They'd already had, I think, a small recession mm. as well. Um, and the fact that they immediately put in like unitary executive authority, it's like, oh, basically, uh, the president can do like anything. Yeah. Like, absolutely anything. And by the president, I mean the executive. And by the executive, I mean all of this stuff runs through Dick yeah. Cheney's office. Yeah. That was like put in place very, very quickly. Well, they li- that's why I think it, um, things would have been the same because there mm. would have been a reason because they had that printed out ready. Yeah, and they just needed a, a reason to stamp it. I think you can see, you can probably posit uh, an alternative reality where nine eleven doesn't happen and you do have that continuation, but there's it's it's less abrupt. A lot of those, like the Afghanistan Afghanistan invasion was very abrupt. 9-11 was abrupt, obviously. Afghanistan invasion was very abrupt. Um, then t- probably a year later, you have the lead up to the Iraq war, which was, again, you could look at that from the outside and it, it, it seems very planned, but it, it, it comes as very abrupt because they literally have no reason to do it. They, there is no mm. right mm. for them to do that. Mm. And already everyone had already gathered around these lines that suggested that they weren't thinking about 9-11. They weren't thinking about the war on terror even, really. They Mm. were thinking about themselves and their own positions in their societies, which you can map onto today. Like behind all of the kind of spiked people, all the Catherine Burble Sings, all the terrible commentators you get to, there is an underlying material reality. It can be as simple as we have to save our highfalutin jobs mm. and our easy lives, but also that I would like to feel a part of this. Yeah. It's wrong, but I don't care. Yeah. I live in a decadent society. I'm going to cheerlead this shit. Mm. I'm Eric Kaufman, and I'm going to be a borderline white supremacist, and I'm a university, and I'm going to invite him to speak. Mm. I have to continue this this whole thing because it has symbolic, again, symbolic value as opposed to any kind of material consequence. Yeah. We will always be talking about war forever now. Because this also firmly installed the kind of conflict within the modern Labour Party. I don't think it really affected the Conservative Party as much. I, I mean, no. there were a few of them, David Amos included, who then expressed regret for going to war and mm. expressed regrets for the various actions afterwards. But the Labour Party, it really showed you what they were about. 
Yeah. It it absolutely it absolutely fucking destroyed the the Labour Party for me. I know oh, yeah. I don't know how many of them are left in there from well, those decisions, but the reason it took us so long to join the Labour Party when Corbyn came in was because of everything we had experienced of the Labour Party after 9-11. Yeah. And it's also so fucking funny, I was thinking about this. In the US, all of the architects of the Iraq War and the post-9-11 kind of wars, they're mostly either gone or Mm. kind of in disgrace. Mm. I mean, Colin Powell died a few weeks ago. He will always be remembered as as the most obvious example of cowardice in (laughs) modern times. Um... W. Bush, George mm. W. Bush, is away doing his painting. He's faintly a joke. Mm. Um, Giuliani is the most joke man of the last 20 years, going from America's mayor to somebody who just shits himself in public constantly. Yes. <laughs> um, you know, I know like Cheney's very quiet. They've all mm. retired. Donald Rumsfeld died a little while ago. Um, Paul Wolfowitz is still alive. Uh, but they're mostly they're mostly gone, yeah. and I think like you can definitely tell conservatives once they have used up their figureheads, yeah, they, they have them. no problem with discarding them because they know they need to get a new bunch in. But also their figureheads are more happy with doing that, of yeah. riding off into because the they've sunset. done that. They have concrete yeah. goals because they have a more broad goal, which is stop this. Yeah, whatever happens. Or is Tony Blaine never leave? This is the other thing I was going to say. In 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 addition to that, like those figures us in Britain are mm. still there. Mm. And are constantly, constantly have attempts for them to be rehabilitated. Mm. Alistair Campbell, Tony Blair, Jack Straw appears on documentaries every now and again and is asked for his opinion for some fucking reason. Um, And they just get brought out to just do their same thing. Never Mm. learning, never appreciating the consequences of the action they've done. But they have to be propped up. And I'm at a loss as to why that is. I know maybe the, what would you call it, the centrist, I guess, side is, is... it's nascent. It doesn't have a key organising principle other than what it's against, and so hangs on to its figureheads a lot longer. But what fucking use if you're interested well, in war is Tony Blair now? Somebody yeah. who everybody hates. Yeah. Why would you wheel him out in support well, of your new war? Well, it's because he's like... He's a symbol for how much they're hated. Hmm. Like he's like a weather... He's like a, a lightning rod for for everyone in this country's opinions on that era Mm. and it reflects badly on them Mm. if people don't like Tony Blair they don't like my politics they don't like like that era yeah Yeah. Um, and so they have to rehabilitate it because otherwise people will hate you know with people hating him it's clear that people hate them yeah and so that's why they've got to make him good yeah and make people realise they're wrong yeah and that and that's it because that's their their own they don't really have an argument except to tell you you're wrong. It's weird because it kind of the whole post nine eleven period has forced an entire class of people into a kind of a, a, a like a strategic cul de sac with that stuff hmm. because they can't ever give it up. They can't invent any new ideas because that was the perfected hmm. mm-hmm. method of doing that thing. Hmm. You know they are they're bereft. They are completely they they they've cut off they've cut off history because that's all unions and strikes and bad stuff. Yeah. They've cut off a future because the future has to be 1997 until 2010. Mm. 2007 let's say. Yeah. And it's it's incredible. Like it's incredible how dogged they are. They fucking won as well. Mm. Also, let's not like let's not kid ourselves. Mm. Let's not deceive ourselves. They fucking won. Mm. They had the staying power. Mm. They embedded themselves like ticks in there. Mm. And they did it. <laughs> Well done, I guess. Yeah.
And for all of the, you know, there was a lot of kind of at the time, a lot of liberals who were like, oh, I, George Bush was everything they hated. Yes. Right? It, like, as bad as Trump, mm -hmm. whatever they say. And yet, the full logic of, if you can say there's a logic to kind of Bush-era conservatism, mm. it's the 1% doctrine. Mm. It's like absolute security, absolute, we're going to be everywhere all the time. If there's a 1% chance of a terrorist attack happening or something happening counter to our interests, that's the code for what terror attack means, um, we will respond with full force. Yeah. Right? And those people, those centrists, the, cent the centrist spectrum, let's say, are using this, that very logic now. Yeah. Think about every gender critical person no. you've ever seen saying like, oh, if there's a, even a 1% chance mm. of uh, women getting attacked in shared toilets, trans people have to be erased mm. from public life. Yeah. Think about um, anti-Semitism. Yeah. People saying, if there's even a 1% chance that a Jewish person got upset by something you said, it was anti-Semitism and therefore has to be drummed out of public life. Yeah. They've taken on that complete logic of the mm. post like the post 9-11 era, that sort of take no prisoners, except they themselves have identified the targets as minorities and oppressed people. Yeah. They've followed exactly the same logic. They've 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 taken it on. And you know, those were those were the people who realistically had the kind of class profile in order to most greatly oppose and reverse what happened after 9-11, like yeah. the, the ways our societies went, the yeah. security states and those kind of things. And they're not fucking interested. It's why Jolion is so, Jolion Morgan is so interesting to me. Yeah. Because, and I say he is the last liberal, because he's the only one who still does that, mm. who takes liberal logic and actually like applies it to achieve a certain goal. Yeah. Everyone else is just ha like happy to kind of vacillate yeah. around symbols like, I don't know, the fucking EU. Mm. And not look at what it's actually doing, but it's so nice. Yeah. It's just so nice. I, I feel so comfortable with it. Yeah. And that's 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 fucking war on terror logic. It I is. feel comfortable yeah. around these things, and therefore that's a good thing, and that's what my politics is based around. Mm. Those again, it's those emotional states being brought to bear against something you don't like in favour of something you do. That's that's pure war on terror era. Mm. They started using um terrorist apologist. Language around Corbyn. Mm. They started calling Corbyn a terrorist apologist when yeah. he had never done that. No. Again, pure post 9 11. Yeah. Pure yeah. post 9 11. It did. It, they, yeah. And it's. They were the warriors against terror. They were the ones who were going to protect you, the ordinary people, <laughs> from Corbyn. Yeah. Amazing. It's probably the reason why the cent like centrists and like the soft left took up that mantle, that 1% mantle, is because all of their lives they've been worried about, yeah, being called cowards, being called peaceniks and pussies, and this was a really easy way to prove that they're not, to prove yeah. that they're big, tough, manly, manly men. Yeah. By screaming at us <laughs> and at minorities. I think there's this, like, effect, like uh, talking about the kind of legacy and the significance of 9-11, of like, you could talk about it installing kind of a permanent war economy. Um, BAE is now so important that it's never going to go away. Yeah. Installed this permanent class in, in response to war and everything. There are material differences that have changed, but I think there's, like, this really important, like, effective, uh, like, element to it that kind of ends up affecting all of us in a certain way. Mm. Um, so the, the goal of the 9-11 attacks was to, 
and a lot of subsequent attacks was to just create more images. It was to attack symbols and create symbolic images about the decline and fall of the West. And everyone was very happy to kind of collaborate in the generation and importance of these images. Hmm. Um, Images are important in like late capitalism. They direct our, our flows of emotion. They direct our kind of consumer habits. They direct how we slot into this great machine. The fall of the Twin Towers was a massive disruption to the vis- visible confidence of capitalist civilization. This was the tallest skyscraper in the biggest city of capital. Hmm. It is the thing. It was so shocking and it was seen in these civilizational terms because the skyscraper is the symbol of Western power. It's the pinnacle. Western capitalism constantly expands outwards and upwards and it breaches all limits. And of course, it's interesting that it's increasingly dominated by property and finance, considering what the World Trade Center was. But the interesting thing is skyscrapers are supposed to be the end of the process. They're the last city you build in civilization. Hmm. They're the last thing you build in civilization before you go up into space. They're supposed to be seen going up, not coming down. Mm. And seeing it come down like that was much, much more of a symbolic, shocking spectacle than I think we was any than it was any kind of strategic defeat mm. on the part of the West. Um, the emotional response manifested as yeah, fear, anger, disgust, whatever, but also this kind of feeling that things wouldn't be the same, that the myth was shattered, and that more was to come, and it would probably never end. Um, this was something that the Empire was not able to take in its stride and be assured that something like this would never happen again because it had. Hmm. It did happen again. It kept happening. And I think it can be best like the kind of overall emotional kind of response that gets manifested politically is like a flinch. Hmm. We're constantly just on the edge of flinching, you know, like it, it's wincing, it's moving before you're hurt and hmm. it's always kind of being braced for a blow. It's like a reflex that incurs entirely in your mind, but manifests physically as a kind of like twitchiness. You're never able to move too far with a flinch, but you can move very quickly. Mm. And that's happened with a lot of our politics. Like there's a lot that can move very, very quickly, but it can never move too far. Mm. It changed the way our society, I think, approached politics. Because of these constrained bounds of the flinch, you couldn't move too far because you might end up in a position where you're even more vulnerable than when you started. Um, And obviously, if you're moving too far, you might achieve something. You might achieve some kind of closure. And if you concluded 9-11, the the symbol of Western capitalism falling, what else did you have? You didn't have anything past that. Like we all... prime example of the kind of this symbolic conflict that went on was the fact that everybody breathed past when Osama bin Laden was killed Hmm. it was nothing it meant Hmm. nothing it was like 2010 2011 meant absolutely nothing to anybody because it was never about that by then it had moved from a singular act of one person to this broad spectrum organizing principle of the west the west didn't exist to progress the world on in history anymore it existed to wage this war forever to hold everything in place as a, a still image of the way things were just before 9-11 and defend that. And because this kind of attack happened on an image level, it had to be solved on an image level. It wasn't actually important for bin Laden to be killed. This, the theater, the security theater that everything was being done in the name of people. Um, I seem to remember at the time, like one of the first responses was, Oh yeah, when they build back the world trade center, they should build it one level (laughs) higher. 
Yeah, like, what the that. fuck does that matter? Yeah. It doesn't matter at all. But it does matter because people were already subconsciously operating on a symbolic level of understanding mm. what this thing meant yeah. to people. And, you know, you'll, you'll say to me, oh, yeah, but, you know, hundreds of actual people died. There were wars afterwards. It had all these material effects. And, of course, it is. But the immediate image of 9-11 is not of people dying. Mm. The immediate image of 9-11 is of that tower crashing. That mm. is the thing that every paper uses. It's the thing the bit that every documentary uses. It's that and the smoke billowing out. Yeah. It wasn't people dying. It was property damage. Yeah. It was the thing coming down. Um, that... Do you remember that um, fake picture of the guy on top of the Twin Towers as the plane was coming mm. in? It was like the most shared image in a, a like, little piece of early popular internet history. Yeah. Like not, on, not hidden on the forums and subforums that we were on. But it was like shared everywhere, mm. forwarded presumably. Mm. Um, that was like an early piece of, of like internet history. And again, it had that like this gormless guy sitting on top of the Twin Towers enjoying his life while... In the background, horror was just about to happen to him. Mm. And that is the flinch. That is the way that we've processed all of these, all of these events. Probably yeah. the last big event that was solely shown on the TV, that yeah. primarily absorbed through television images yeah. rather than on the internet. Um, and what's interesting is actually just after uh, 9-11 in October, uh, there was a report in Variety that um, the US Army had commissioned a working group to, quote, brainstorm about terrorist targets and schemes in America and to offer solutions to those threats. The people they invited was John D'Souza, the director of Die Hard, Spike Jones, David Fincher, and other, like, action film directors because they immediately realised that they were responding on a symbolic level because yeah. the terrorists themselves, the people who hated them or whatever, were watching films and trying to replicate what they saw in yeah. the films. It was a, a this mass-mediated spectacle. And what 9-11 taught us was that that spectacle was as important and as not as important, as significant yeah. as the material reality of the thing itself. The healing glow of the image sustained us as reality just collapsed. Nothing made sense anymore. Yeah. And it ha I don't think it's made sense since. I, I think it repairs itself every now and again mm. and things make sense. But fucking, you look at half of the discourse that goes on, half of the kind of priorities people have, and they don't make any sense. No. But what makes sense is the image. Yeah. The still image of what happened just before 9-11. That's what makes sense. And it's no wonder people are trying to get back to it. Mm. And the problem with living in this image world that we do now, this symbolic world, is that it privileges the framings of the most powerful creators of those images. That's the mass media and ultimately powerful people. I mean, think about how many times in the last 20 years the powerful have complained about being bullied. Mm. Like, have cry-bullied their way into something. I mean, it was, it was starting back then in 2001 with, like, tax rates. Yeah. Charging someone a tax rate is oppression. Yeah. And now, if you oppose, like, luxury housing or suggest trans people have a right to defend themselves, you know you have already participated in the kind of sectioning off of acceptable targets. Yeah. And that's controlled because those people have controls of those images and they're mm. not applying them in an egalitarian way. Yeah. Um, the most ridiculous warped shit has been defended and upheld because we are not in control of the spectacle and the spectacle reaches all of us really easy. It undermines the one big power that mass, the mass has, the working class has, which is numbers. Mm. That 
spectacle can reach all of us very, very quickly and very easily. And those categories of oppressor and oppressed, liberator and liberated are blurred because they are part of that same 9-11 pattern to wrestle images away from material reality to a place where they can be manipulated and controlled by the powerful. Pretty soon, even your best opposition can only operate on the level of the image. Mm. What made Remain fail? It was because they thought that getting your voice out and being the image of an opposition mm. was more important than actually... And, you know, they just claimed victory after yeah. doing that thing. That was all they needed to do. They put the symbolism out there mm. and then naturally they would win. And of course it did fuck all because yeah. they had no appreciation of how to leverage actual political power because they're captured by this spectacle, by this mm. image. I dare say it, it was the temptation of the image of seeing Ian Duncan Smith lose his seat that made Labour pour so many resources into unseating him in Drinkford, mm. which, according to reports, is one of the reasons why they may have neglected certain other parts of the country and why they wanted to unseat Tories mm. and win seats that were unwinnable because of, I mean, yeah, OK, to prove to the Labour right that they could yeah. do it, but also because they were in love with the image of that piss-boiling moment. Yeah. If you stop thinking of these things in terms of your own interests and as kind of living, breathing things, if you stop thinking of these things in terms of like how they affect those around you, how they affect your interests, if you think about your own history and your own daily interactions with a thing, you instead kind of start to think about the image, the interests of the image. It's why you've got people defending like the police and say, well, without the police, they protect you. And it's like the police don't protect you. No. But the image of the police does. Yeah. And you can't get rid of that. You can't ever change it because you've got a snapshot in your mind of that's what the police are for. Mm. It extends to the military as well. The, mm. the military needs to be um, given all the money and sent to everywhere because they're protecting us. They yeah. couldn't protect you from 9-11. It was incapable. You, it would be impossible for the military to protect people from mm. those kind of terrorist attacks. Even if they were everywhere, they would not be able to stop it. Mm. That is a fact. But the yeah. image became more important than the material reality. We're thinking in terms, of, in terms of flinching and looking for safety in the image of institutions that are not built for function anymore. They're built for form. They're mm. built to project a particular form, and that's what we find comfort in. That's like the ultimate legacy of 9-11. So we're left with this constant feeling like everything is broken, and we live in a world where everything is in a constant state of needing fixing. Mm. But we're denied any of the tools to actually appreciate the problem or do it ourselves because we constantly have this other thing on our back, which is we're scared of the outside context and we look at the things around us and they're, they're, they're fixed in place. They can't be changed, and they're, even if they're obstacles. We're focused on the image so hard that we're, we're just seeing the map and we're not seeing the territory. Hmm. That's kind of the main thing I take away from 9-11, that it's, we're all engaged in the spectacle. Hmm. And operating on its terms. We're engaging, we're operating on 9-11's terms yeah. all the time. That's us for this week. You can follow us at WDTATW underscore podcast. Follow me at BM Bergamo. Follow Hugh at Tanis. Follow Hugh at Struggle Ruffian. Yeah. And we will see you next week. Bye. I love my country. Indeed I do. Indeed I do. Fighting am the least about the fighting game when Mr. Hoover said to come.